0: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, two days in a row. This is impressive. I don't think I've ever done this. <laughs> it's, it's at least been a few days. Uh, you know, except for like Mayday Com. It was like 16 straight hours of uh of just my face. Um, but uh guys, today I am joined by author Evan Winner. Uh I mean, I could say fantasy author, I could say potentially science fiction author, but we'll say fantasy author because <laughs> right now it's fantasy right uh but he is the critically acclaimed and or author of the critically acclaimed and award-winning book the rage of dragons uh and his sequel the fires of vengeance comes out here in just a few short days on november 10th which is uh mm-hmm. right around the corner um <laughs> and uh i'm just uh, so happy for you to be here evan how are you doing today
1: I'm doing really well. Thank you very much for having me. I, I, I do remember that uh, the power went out where you are. And so I appreciate you sort of you know, scrambling to make sure that this still happened. Thanks for that. And uh, and, you know, just making sure the show must go on, I guess.
0: <laughs> always, always. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's not really my bookcase. Uh, <laughs> it's it's more of a, a blank wall with a closed window because, I mean, it's either, you know, this or you see a building behind me. So uh, I don't have much of a view. I, I wish I could say there's a sprawling ocean and, you know, beautiful beaches behind me, but you no, know, it's like some trees and I'm pretty sure there's a daycare there. I mean, I just, we just moved here. So maybe you could see some kids playing, I don't know. <laughs> but no, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so, uh, so Zeta um, hit harder than people anticipated. It doing. Um, it wasn't a big storm, but those gusts, man, they it uh, took some trees down. I think there's about 500,000 people without power in the state, at least of Alabama right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, our neighborhood's been out since about one thirty this morning, and not a clue when it's going to come back up. So <laughs> Goodness.
1: Well, hopefully things get sorted out. And did you do get power back? I mean, that's a, that's a bit crazy. Uh, yeah, hopefully. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see. I feel like we could have gone back to bed. Um, but my, my wife's a little anxiety ridden with her with her 20-week old, which you know, it, it makes sense. Um, but you know, we've got like, you know, baby monitor and outlet, you know, making sure that she's asleep and staying asleep and breathing and everything. So it was like us taking shifts, like sitting in the in the nursery or laying on the floor in the nursery, just making sure she's still alive. Yep. But I swear sort of, she slept all the way till I had to wake her up at seven. And I go, man, I could have gotten like five hours to sleep. that would be great. You know, but it is what it is. I mean, you, you do what you got to do.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I remember those days really well where uh, my biggest fear was that like my, my little guy would just stop breathing in the middle of the night for no reason. But so we'd sit there and I, I still, you know, I would sit there next to the crib and just kind of like listen to him breathe to make sure. And so I fully remember those days and uh, I completely understand.
0: Yeah. They, they don't go away. Uh, I mean, even, even when we had you know the bassinet right next to the bed, you know, my wife's always just kind of like creeping over looking, but it's, it's funny. What, as soon as, uh, we changed, we changed a swaddle and as soon as she started kind of moving the bassinet and making too much noise, Ma, I was like, all right, time to time go to the crib. We're done. <laughs> um, all right. So kind of, to, to get kind of on book talk a little bit. So, um, you know, obviously fires of vengeance coming out, um, very highly anticipated. I know by a lot of people, um, I know you've got some great reviews already, uh, coming out. I know a lot of people are still, uh, kind of finding the Rage of Dragons, which I mean, to me is kind of surprising, but you know, at the same time, you know, everybody will get there eventually. Right. Um, but tell me, tell me a little bit, what was, um, especially in your writing process, what did you find different or maybe more challenging or less challenging going from book one to book two?
1: yeah i think probably the biggest difference was having to write under contract and um like book one i was writing completely completely for myself with no expectations that anyone else would would really read it i mean there was always the hope that it would be read but i had no idea if that would be the case or not um and so then once orbit picked up the book and you know and bought the series and they have a contract deadline date for book two it's just a different feel to try and get that same length of story the same sort of um you know, the story's broken up into four parts. Um, And so to get that same amount of story that book one had into book two, but in this much more sort of defined and constricted sort of time period. And yeah, it's a different kind of pressure when you know that other people are sitting there waiting um, for it and and readers as well as uh, the publisher, the editor, uh, the art director, the illustrator, the audiobook narrator. And so there's a whole machine behind the writing um, that has to sort of move ideally at a reasonable scheduled pace. Um, and so, you know, it's, you never want to let that sort of, that whole group of people down and screw up their schedules. But at the same time, it, it's sort of, I'm really trying as hard as I can to tell the best story that I know how to tell. Uh, so writing under contract was, was, was an adjustment, I should, I can definitely say that. Um, I think also just the, I think also, there's sort of, a, I would hope, kind of a leveling up in the way that I approach story, because I've already done the job once. And so I understand the world more deeply, I understand the characters more deeply. And it's an attempt to then take everything that has, has been built to that point And I and again, ideally, make it something more. Um, so that was also that also felt very challenging. Uh, but really, I guess, compressing it all into that shorter timeframe, um, that's very defined. That's what makes it hard. Yeah, because
0: so, uh, how long did it take you to write rage originally?
1: Uh, the first draft took probably about seven months uh, for Rage of Dragons. Um, I, I'm a big outliner, so I kind of outlined for probably a month, a month to two months before that, jumped into the, into the draft and just went. Uh, uh, but that sort of that timeline's maybe a little deceptive, though, because there's a lot of sort of prethinking that happens before. Um, so before I actually started writing Rage, which is my first book, I was thinking about the idea for this book for a very long time about the world and everything else. And then even with Fires of Vengeance, uh, as soon as Rage was kind of finished and handed in, I'm thinking and thinking and thinking, even when I'm not actively outlining or drafting. So there's sort of this whole period where just um, I try to read and research and just let the world kind of come into my head a little bit and then try and reflect some of what I'm learning and taking in from the broader world into the story and into the sort of the yeah, overall narrative that I was already trying to tell.
0: Okay. Um, so, as far as as far as far your writing, uh, I know we talked a little bit back, I uh, guess what was it, November, December of last year. We had a little, little podcast chat and we had some questions still around, but I wanted to ask, you know, when did you actually start writing and when did you start writing seriously? Like, when did you know that you wanted to write the Rage of Dragons and you wanted to put it out, you know, to the world? Uh, cause you know, you, you can write all day, but never feel like it's good enough to publish, uh, you know, let alone, you know, self-publish before exploding into the world of, of, uh, traditional publishing. But just, just curious, you know, what, what, when was the, you know, when was like the, the, the light bulb, when did it go off?
1: Um, I think. I'd always wanted to write, but it just doesn't seem like something that's a realistic sort of job goal. like you know. So I didn't know what the path could be to that. Um, and it was a really important thing for me to try and do before the day I kind of died, I guess, <laughs> to, to be frank. Um, and so in, I guess it was 2016 to 2017, I was sort of between jobs. And I knew I had about a year um, before I had to start the next job. And that sort of year period was just basically, you know, financially determined. I knew I had a year where I could sort of last. And, and I thought to myself, uh, I'm getting older. I have a family, we have a mortgage. Um, this is probably the last opportunity I will ever have to chase this dream um and so i said i'll give it a shot um thankfully uh the family was was very supportive um my wife was supportive because i I wouldn't have been able to do it if um if she wasn't and if the you know the broader family wasn't supportive of my decision to try and make this happen so i sat down and i wrote and with sort of the hard stopping deadline of i have a year to do this and I just want to know if this dream that I've always had makes any kind of sense at all. I just want to know if I even enjoy the process of writing, or if it's more the sort of the fantasy of, uh, of of writing is more appealing than the reality of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll, I think I'll always say this: um, it's work. It definitely is work, and it's hard to make yourself do it. It's it's extra hard in a year like 2020 when you know things are just so chaotic and wild. It's really hard to sit shut out the world and try to go into a whole other world and make that world as real as tangible and as important as the one that I exist in for every other moment of the day. Um, So it is work, but I loved doing it. Uh, And so in that year in 2017 when I wrote Rage, uh, it was it was a labor of love because I got to sit down and do this thing that made me feel incredible. It felt so natural as well. Um, and I'm not saying that it needs to for people who are writing. Um, maybe some people feel that it's a very unnatural thing that they when they sit down to write. But I've never, for me personally, I've never felt like I was more doing something that I was meant to do, and, uh, and not in some kind of mystical way necessarily. <laughs> just it just felt right. Uh, so from when I wrote Rage and I self published it, I was um, I was really hopeful that I could just keep doing it because of how much it felt like what I should be doing. I gotcha. So
0: it wasn't, you know, you're like, you're, you're coming of age. And uh, <laughs> you had this mystical prophecy that you had to write a book. But I do find it interesting, you know, that you you did not say that you kind of gave yourself a deadline, but that you kind of had a deadline. You're like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it now. And I have to be done by this point. Um, so you kind of, you kind of got yourself ready for tr- the traditional publishing side so by doing that because you're like, okay, I've got a year to write it now. Granted. What is it now? Potentially, what six to eight months? It might be more. I, I guess it depends on the book and the size. But you know, in traditional publishing, you know, what's what's about your turnaround time for a, for a
1: draft? It seems to be typically by the time you finish something and hand it in, and then you have to hand in the next thing. It's it's roughly about a year. Um, okay. Yeah, and so it's it, it's enough time in a lot of ways. But the trick, the, the the hard part that I found was that I had an entire lifetime to develop not develop, but to sort of let all of the things that I loved about fantasy and I loved about story and loved about characters sort of sit there in my head and build. Um, and then I got to sort of pour all of that out into Rage of Dragons. And then, so I got to, I got to lean on all of my life for Rage of Dragons. And then with book two and Fires of Vengeance, I no longer had that. I'd push, I'd put all that onto paper. And so um, for Fires, I had a that same year to write the book in. But now I couldn't, I didn't have that large pool of resources to to sort of pull from. I had to just find what in the actual story I was telling really, really needed to be told, um, as opposed to looking to, I don't know, as opposed to looking to my history as a reader uh, and my Uh history as a fan of the genre. I had to then find um, what I really wanted and needed to say, I think, um, and how the story needed to come out. Now, when you originally wrote
0: Rage, did you did you want to write it as a standalone? Did you intend to write it as a four part series? Because uh, I, you know, I I know sometimes you know you, you you write a book and it gets published and all of a sudden you know maybe you're acquiring editors like oh huh, you got you got a, a trilogy in you, you got a you got a four you know book series in you and you're kind of like eh, probably could you know because like, I know I was talking to Essa yesterday and she had mentioned that you know, her first book can be read as a standalone. Uh, it doesn't have any cliffhanger endings or anything so so was rage was it intended as a as a standalone or did you write it knowing i could potentially write more in this world
1: yeah, no, that's a great question, um, and for me, Rage is always intended to be a four-part series. Like uh, from the very outset, from the very beginnings of outlining, I was trying, I, I, I like the idea of structure. I like the idea of outlining, so that helps me feel more comfortable when I'm drafting. To feel, It makes me feel as if I can lean back on that structure and on that outline, so that I don't have to worry about if the story is going to flow or make sense. So from the outset, I sit down, I sat down, I should say. And I said, this is going to be a four part series um, so that way it has a beginning, it moves into that sort of like idea of the second act, the first half of the second act, the second half of the second act, and then into the final act. So I always knew that was the way I wanted to tell the story. Um, so yeah, from outset, always plan to be four, four books. That's awesome.
0: Um, um, so you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the difficulties, I guess going from, or not the difficulties, but the, the things that kind of change between writing your first book versus writing your second book. Uh, do you, do you feel those pressures now? And I know you mentioned kind of uh, you're starting to work on book three. Are you, are you feeling that same thing? Is, is that pool starting to deplete? Do you feel like you've added some stuff to the pool, you know, after finishing book two uh, you know, where, where are you kind of sitting right now?
1: Yeah. I think that, um, Book three feels different than book two. Book two felt, um, it did feel hard. It did feel like a lot of pressure to sort of, then try to live up to whatever it was that I had done in book one. Um, to myself, if to no one else at least, just to myself. Um, I am happy with book two. Uh, I feel like it's a book that if I were to read it as a reader, I would very much enjoy it. Uh, and that's always sort of my goal is to, uh, I, I've said this a couple times before, but it, I really do believe it. Um, I don't know how to write for someone else because I only can ever guess what someone else wants. Um, I've worked in marketing for a lot of years and oftentimes they you have, they have the idea of sort of like the prototypical person that is this or that is that. And they try to say, well, that's, the, that's our customer. And I've never liked that idea because what you're doing when you do that is you're trying to guess at what someone else wants. And oftentimes because we are sort of putting our thoughts onto some other sort of proxy human, you're dumbing it down and you're, you're, you're speaking down to that person. Um, uh, at least that's what it felt like to me in marketing. So in writing, because I didn't wanna guess what anybody else liked and because I was kind of not thinking with rage that anyone might even read it, uh, I was very, very much writing it completely for myself so that if I, in some alternate universe, were to come upon the book and read it, I would think it was awesome. And maybe no one maybe no one else would maybe everyone else would be like ah oh, this is this is not a good story it's, the, the, the world bullyings this the characters are this the plot is this but to me it's to evan in alternate universe if I picked up rage I would really really enjoy it and that's what I wanted to do um, and I think with fires I was even able to pull more of that out um, and I probably enjoy fires even more myself because I got to finish Rage. See where some of the parts, see where some of the things I was trying to do, I maybe didn't have the ability to put onto the page as as uh, cleanly as I would have liked. Uh, and I think that I was able to to I was able to take what's up in my head and put it onto the page a bit more whole, like a bit more holistically for Fires than I was even for Rage. So although it was very hard to do book two, it did feel I do I'm very very proud of the end result. And with book three again, I don't have anything sort of to lean back on in terms of I've always loved the genre, all the reading I've done, let me try and and, and sort of, uh, you know, word vomit that out onto the page. It, it feels a lot more, um, I don't know, it feels like um, I started very emotional. Like the, the, with rage, there's a lot of emotion in terms of what I'm trying to do in, in the type of story I'm trying to tell. And that's still there. That's the heart of what I, I, I believe I'm doing. But there's a, it feels as if there's more of an intellectual uh, sort of overlay to what's happening now because i again i can't lean on what i know i have to i have to sort of find i have to learn things and then put them out if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah and when you when you you started talking marketing i was just like i know exactly sure that I, I was a marketing major in college so yeah, right. so every, everything you're saying i'm like yeah that, that it always rubbed me the wrong way that's mm-hmm. you need to put people in a box because you can't let me, people make their own decisions you're making them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's uh, I could talk about that all day. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I was losing my train of thought. Um, When you when you go to writing, I mean, you know, your process, uh, when you wrote Rage, I'm sure, obviously is different from when you wrote Fires. Do you when you just sit down to write, do you write everything that comes to mind and then come back and edit? Do you have to write and make it I'm not gonna say perfect, but you know where it doesn't have to be edited quite as much you know do you do you like to to cut the chaff you know early or do you just throw it on the page do a quick read through and then go this this is good enough and then pass it on
1: um well for me because i do do the outline that's where i do my first draft really is in that outline so um the books so far have been around 500 pages each um, so for the 500 page book i'll end up having pretty much a hundred page outline and my process is to write the outline at the outset um, and then I work on that work on that work on that until I get to the point where I can read the outline from top to bottom and it feels like a complete story just in Cole's notes form and what I'm trying to do with that is I'm trying to see where the bumps in the road are so um, you know I'll I'll hit a scene maybe 30% in in my outline and I'll go oh that doesn't that feels weird I don't feel like I'm doing what i need to do or or the focus is is funny or the stakes aren't right and then i'll work on that and fix it as best as i'm able and i keep doing that until the outline reads front to back like a book that i would absolutely adore if i read it then i sit down and try and make that into a book um so i think it relieves again given for me as a, as a writer, um, I like that approach because it relieves a lot of the pressure. Because in the outline, you feel like you're playing. You're like, okay, I'm trying to figure this out. There's not the pressure of having to you know, craft sentences at the same time and sort of create prose and forward momentum and all the rest. It's it's just you're playing, you're creating sort of the overall puzzle. And so then when that's all done and dusted, I, when I get to sit down and actually draft, I have those notes and they're sitting there on the screen beside me so that I can then just say, I know what this needs to be. Now it's time to make it really be so yeah so it's so it's like
0: you're doing the main quest and not doing any of the side quests and yeah you have the main quest figured right. out you go i'm gonna go explore it now
1: yeah yeah it is kind of like that I, I think that i will say though that um uh, one of the things that um i never loved that much even in video games uh i'm not a completionist some people are full-on completionists oh, games of video games i am I, i'm a main okay. quest kind of guy so
0: <laughs> are you a you, you're a side quest person Oh my gosh I'm, I'm the person that goes to the ends of the maps to find if there's anything there oh, no. that is worth finding oh yeah yeah i mean I'll, I'll i'll dump hundreds of hours into like fallout or zelda or something i was talking to esther about it yesterday i was like you know it's one of those things where i don't have the time now to, to play video games because i'm one of those that just has to explore mm-hmm. and, and i and i like seeing that ticker go you know five percent six percent seven percent and it's like oh if i can get to hundreds it'll feel so good you know but mm-hmm. And I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's something that's happened more recently. Now having a Kindle, when I get to one hundred percent done with the book, I, just feel, I feel relieved. You know, I'm like, oh, that was a great book, and I'm done, and I can go to the next thing. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's it's a credit to the games, to the creators of the games that you play, that they've made a world so compelling that you feel inclined to explore that it's from edge to edge. Like that's that's a beautiful thing. Um, and I guess I guess for me, I don't. I guess for me maybe even when playing a video game that's sort of it's the story that drives me forward it's the it's the idea of what the person's trying to communicate uh, and so i guess there's that sort of sandbox feel where you can enjoy the world for the world and i love doing that and i'm always very much like well where are we going what's happening next and, and i think that i'd probably do that in my writing too because like, <laughs> side
0: quest no i'm good I, I'm get <laughs> <the bottom off. laughs> um so i got a couple of questions uh from the from the audience So first off uh travel and cook wants to know how have current world events changed the way you write your content process publishing
1: etc. hmm i guess the main one um in terms of just publishing as an industry is that we do way more things like this than we're doing now right um and uh, I can't say that good things come out, of the, come out of the pandemic and everything else, but I will say that I appreciate being able to do these things. I appreciate it as a reader, as a fan of the genre, because I get to sit there and like, for example, watch your interview with Essa yesterday. I get to sit there and check out a bunch of Orbit's crowdcasts, and and I'm sitting there learning from other writers because we all do the job a little bit differently. Uh, and I get to watch, you know, uh, Joe Abercrombie or N.K. Jemisin or, you know, Alex E. Harrow sit there and talk craft. And that's a pretty amazing thing that I would not really have had the chance to do. live in Canada, you know, a lot of a lot of the my compatriots at Orbit maybe are in the states or other parts of the world. But now it just feels so much more like a community uh, because because of technology. Um, so I very much appreciate that as part of the process. It's been a large part of me learning how to improve um, my own sense of craft because I can co- sort of go and sit in a classroom with people that are halfway around the world. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and you're right. I mean, you know, I've, I've done. I've like lost count at this point, like how many chats I've had with authors, but not a single one has been the same. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's why I can kind of ask the same questions because every single person is different. Some some people have a set schedule, where they wake up, drink a cup of coffee and start writing. Or some people are like, I have to work my day job and I get to write at night if I have time. Or... I wake up at two o'clock in the morning because I have kids and a day job and I don't have time to write, you know, it, it's always different. And then, you know, the way words hit the page and work and, and page count or word count per day or per week. I mean, it's all different and it's, but it's so interesting hearing where people get their ideas, where, um, you know, their writing style comes from, uh, and you know, how some people have, you know, been writing for years and never published anything. And then all of a sudden it's just like boom, 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 here's books. Uh, and some are just starting out, you know, just like, you know, you in 2017, you know, your first book published, and then here you are on your, you know, you're releasing your second book and then three and four are coming soon. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and, and hearing, hearing where people got their starts. So I don't know if you ever, if you listened to, uh, to Devin Madsen's interview, uh, cause I always like to know, you know, some of the first, like, you know, things that you wrote, you know, maybe as a kid or whatever, she had, uh, written one about, um, about Christmas trees uh and 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 one being cut down and it was like a really like murdery sad story but she wrote when she was like five
1: <laughs> sounds, sounds very devin madsen to me sounds right very- <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: so you know just hearing that i'm just like you know man you've got to you know release that somehow i, mean, like, I felt I like that'd be a great sort of people to, to read or just to like include as like a little extra or something but but yeah it's it i think it's been great i mean you know we did the we did the convention back in May or had you know like 35 plus authors come on and just mm-hmm. talk craft and publishing. And I mean, we probably got off topic a lot just because you know so, some of the panels, it's just a, a bunch of goobers that I had, especially my indie publishing panel. Uh, Actually you know, we got Josiah Bancroft coming in and, and talking with Dirk Ashton. I mean, you just, you, you get them together with Jonathan Wood and a couple other guys. And, they just sit there and goof off the whole time we don't even talk books
1: so hey, you had an awesome crew on for that uh for that con and i remember just i was popping in and out watching uh throughout the day and i was first of all yeah the authors you got on were all incredible and, and uh, uh, love so many of them and then second of all for you to have done that and gone from panel to panel to panel uh, how long was your recovery period after that wild matic uh,
0: let's see so so we started at what like it was like 7 a.m central uh and finished at 9 p.m. Uh and the only breaks that I took were between the author readings, which those were only 30 minute, you know, segments. But I mean, I had four or five energy drinks during the day, and I, I told my wife I was like, "Everybody keeps telling me I need to do another one, but I think we going to break it up into two days."
1: <laughs> that was it was heavy, and I, I mean, I was we started tip. doing this. Like, I I know the I I know how I, like how hard it can be. And I don't know how you'd manage to do it for like over 12 hours. That's a hats off to you. On well, that. Luckily, luckily one of the
0: panels ran itself. Uh, mm. The one with uh, with Peter V. Brett and everybody, they uh, they kind of just asked themselves questions. So I just kind of sat back and I was like, all right, this is my breakdown. Cool. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. And, and, you know, this was something obviously I started before the pandemic kid and I just tried to find ways just to I know a lot of people are kind of sitting on Twitter going, okay, you know, books are coming out and, you know, just to give, to give them something else to view or listen to learn more about the authors that they love reading, learn about authors that are, haven't debuted yet that will be or just debuted or they maybe have never heard of um you know i've, I've done a lot of a lot of orbit uh, they've been they've been very kind to me so i, I feel like i uh, i do i do a, a good service to them by <laughs> pretty much interviewing all their authors but um but yeah it's it, it's amazing the book community is great um mm-hmm. and yeah i think i think the pandemic's definitely you know boosted it up even more i, I feel like if everybody was kind of in their normal daily routine you know it, it might be a little different might not be quite as uh as visible uh as, as it has been the past you know what has it been now eight months nine months doesn't mm-hmm. count <laughs> it's forever <laughs> um all right another question for you from ryan um he says i love how Tao's major drive is vengeance and it seems to cause him trouble just as often as it moves him forward how do you balance his movement down a violent path so it has positives and negatives
1: yeah, thank you for the question. Um and that's uh, it's a, a, a tough one. Positives and negatives, um even though he's I th- I think that the Tao, as he sort of speaks to me, is a is a person who has no matter what decision Tao makes, the society in which he lives makes it the wrong decision. Um it's very difficult in 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 Omehi culture, if you are a lesser, to to travel a path that leads to a better place. Like every you know, so that weight of of, of sort of um, systemic oppression that he sort of is under uh, adds to the adds to the way that he approaches life and the decision makes the decisions he makes. Um, so, so for me, everything he does feels very much real. Although so for some others, from other readers who read it, they might go, I, I don't get why he would make this choice here. That seems so rash or so impulsive. Um, but. For me, when I look at that, and I think of the fact that, of the way that the society has treated him, and of the of the fact that no matter what choices he makes, it almost never seems to work out in so as, as, as long as a noble's there to sort of view it, and then decide on whether that was the right choice or not, it almost always ends up going bad. So there's, there's a level of sort of frustration um, and anger, and just a, a sense of overwhelming unfairness that he kind of has embodied, um, and sort of it results in him lashing out. So, are there positives to that? I don't know. Like, I, I, on one level, it's easy to say, no, they're not. You should just be calmer, uh, more reasonable, more rational. But when you are in a place where being calm, being rational, asking nicely, being civil never seems to actually make a big difference to the people who have power over your life, what is the value of continuing to do that? You know, they always that saying about um, what's the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting a different result. Uh, well, I think the Tao, although he's not thinking of this in this way, Tao is the example of somebody who says, I won't do the same thing that has been done before over and over again, because I cannot I can no longer tolerate that same result. Mm-hmm. So now is that a positive? I don't know, because damage is done when you sort of, you know, break from from for lack of a better word, tradition.
0: Yeah. No, no, I agree. Um, you know, it it's hard, it's hard to see positives. I mean, he he himself probably sees the positives out of it because he he's feels like he's breaking free from mm-hmm. a norm, from what you say is tradition. Um, but at the same time, you know, outside looking in, you go, man, he's gonna like come up with a different way. Like he's he's gonna he's gonna change his path at some point. You know, th- this this path is gonna lead to potential you know, death or well, I would say not, not, not much is worse than death, but, uh, but you know, um, but at the same time, you're right. You know, if, if you are continuing this being oppressed and uh, you know, you, you sit here and try to slide by or anything and you just continually are beaten for it or told no, or, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to find another way to kind of break out you know, it could be screaming or, you know, seething rage, (laughs) you know, but, but yeah, I, I kind of agree. And I I wouldn't go, I guess, so far as to say that, man, it's hard to to really feel a positive out of it, but I wouldn't, I would say there's plenty of negatives just because, you know, he can fly into something blindly and be caught off guard. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, only fools rush in kind of, kind of deal. Um, But, but yeah, so, um, as far as Tal, as far as Tal goes, um, can you give us a little insight of, as to how maybe he grows a little bit, uh, in fires? Like, does he continue, uh, the path that he's, he's raged through in Rage of Dragons? Um, or does he, does he divert? Does he become, uh, I guess maybe a lesser of a character? Does he, does he take a backseat to somebody else in book two? I know, I know sometimes with, uh longer series you you have other characters that kind of come to the forefront uh or does he stay in the forefront as we continue the series
1: oh yeah that's a good question and um i guess the the sort of shorter answer would be that he stays in the forefront and the reason for that is that the the story that's being told is a story that although the world exists independently of Tao, although there are a million other stories that could be told in this in this world um, this story, um, sort of, this story is seen through primarily the perspective of, of Tao um, and how he engages with the nature of the world. Um, and so that that's, again, in terms of structure, that is how the story came to me. That is sort of the, the way into this world that I was first um, sort of exposed to. And that's going to be the way it goes all the way down the line, um, it, it's to understand you know, it's to understand the Omehi, it's to understand the Zedin, it's to understand what happened back in Onosante. it's to understand all of that um, as it sort of relates to Tao. Um, and so it's trying to take this sort of, um, it's trying to take the events that happen on a, on a uh, I won't call it global, but on a, at least insofar as these characters understand what, what how much of the world exists, it's an attempt to take uh, the issues of an entire world, but you see them through a very sort of limited lens. Um, and then the trick of that is is to tell the story in such a way that we can, as readers, can appreciate and understand what's happening in the broader world, even though we don't often get to hop out and go to a completely different place and experience it from someone else's uh, perspective entirely.
0: Um so I want to I want to continue on with fires. Um can you tell everybody that is you know waiting on pens and needles uh, I guess what they can expect from, from fires of vengeance, uh, you know, like I said coming up here in, in just a few short days?
1: Yeah. Um I think that fires of vengeance was a real opportunity for me. Just having had the groundwork been been already laid, um I had a chance to really Blow things up, for lack of a better word. I had a chance to sort of just say, "You understand the world now. You understand the the, the characters, and now you get to really see, the fuse has been lit, so to speak, and now you get to see the first of a series of explosions that happen in in large part because of the thing that Tao started. Um, and again, there were other there were other elements at play. So that if Tao didn't exist at all, there still would have been massive explosions in this in this society and in this story. Um, but you, you know, the, the fuse was lit in book one. You get to see the first of the series of explosions in the fires of vengeance.
0: So you just, uh, you, you're basically just pulling a Michael Bay. You're just like, all right, explosion, no, no, explosion. No, no, no. <laughs> Whenever somebody says explosion, I mean, Michael Bay, yeah, is-
1: Michael Bay. The, the camera rotating around characters looking off in the distance. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So I know, um, you've got a little bit, of, a little bit of a, of a piece to read for us. So, um, are you, are you good to start that now?
1: Let's do it, okay. So uh, I'm about to read a short piece from um, The Fires of Vengeance. And uh, The Fires of Vengeance begins pretty much immediately after the last scene from The Rage of Dragons. Um, and so we are, for the scene I'm about to read, we're in the perspective of a physician character. Um, she's part of the Saw priesthood and um, she's a part of their medicinal order. And this uh, sort of, the scene culminates in um, this character's first, um, meeting with Tao Salarin, the queen's new champion. So I'm gonna find my page here. <clears throat> the chapter or the scene, I guess is called, um, is named after the character and uh, the physician and it's Hafsa Ekene. The sun had yet to set in Hafsa Ekene was already of the opinion that the day was a flowering tragedy with more to come before its bloom was full. Her head swiveling left to right, she half walked, half ran to the keep's courtyard. Looking for anyone important enough with whom to share the horrible news. She'd heard that the Queen would be in the courtyard, watching the Ehashi and Inlovu readying themselves to leave a battle, to leave to fight a battle somewhere, but, thought Hafsa, they might need to fight one in the keep first. The general, in her care, had escaped. The same man whose severed arm she'd bandaged and treated just that morning with the best of her considerable abilities, had left her hospital without a trace. The guards assigned to watch him were dead, and so were two of her finest physicians. Hateful, unbelievable, and still not the whole of it. Hafsa had never seen it before. Few had, but she'd read about it in her order's journals, and the twisted bodies of the dead, their mouths open in silent screams, had been the first clues. Then, when she discovered the nature of the weapon that had killed the guards and her physicians, her fears had been all but confirmed. Feeling more desperate with each breath, she abandoned her half-walk for a run and sped into the guardian keep's courtyard. Frightened, she might be throwing herself into the fray and somehow even more afraid that she was already too late. The damaged courtyard with scorched walls and dirt-filled crevasse from which apparently a dragon had emerged was an anthill of activity. Overhead, the sun was hidden by storm clouds and the yard was slick with pelting rain. The afternoon had a hazy dreamlike quality as fighting men of all sizes in leathers, grays, and ugly bronze milled about in organized chaos. A few of the soldiers watched her as she ran, but she had no time for priestly propriety. The queen was in the courtyard. She was still alive, and half so wanted to keep her that way. Queen Siora was with her vizier and Chibuye, the vizier's daughter. The queen was kneeling next to the child and smiling. That was a comfort to see the love there. Hafsa had never wanted children, but since the first moments of the chairman's coup, when the vizier had barreled into her hospital and thrust the child into her care, she hadn't been able to stop worrying over the bright and ever-smiling Chibuye. She'd taken care of the girl for days while the vizier worked without end to put back together some of what Councillor Odili had broken. Far be it for Hafsa to tell any parent their business, but given the time she'd spent with the girl, she knew a portion of what parenting was and felt more than comfortable thinking that Chibuye should not be out here among these killers. Hafsa called the girl when she saw her. Even with the horrors and horrors and lives lost that day, Chibuye's voice lifted Hafsa's heart and she gave the little one a small wave before bending her knees and dipping her head to the queen. This is Priestess Akena, Your Majesty Naya said, introducing her and the question in her voice. Wondering why Hafsa was there was clear as still water. My queen, head still bowed, Hafsa chose to wade in immediately. You're not safe here. Explain that, Naya said. Rise, the queen told her at the same time. Hafsa lifted her head. Naya was staring hard, but the queen watched her more gently, considering her. She didn't look afraid, but that was because she didn't know. The guards and my physicians, they were murdered. The general Hafsa wasn't explaining it well enough. Queen Ciora, I have reason to believe that Hafsa stifled a yelp. He'd appeared beside the queen as if from open air, but more likely she simply hadn't noticed him approaching. How could anyone not notice him? He was black as coal, head shaved clean and had a face that was unnaturally even if one didn't consider the awful scar that ran from nose to cheek on his right side. He was clearly a lesser, but wearing a champion's colors, black and red leathers, with two swords on his hips. She'd heard of him, of course, and it should have been absurd seeing a lesser in champion's garb. But somehow, it wasn't. It was terrifying. Oh, man. Getting get some goosies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you. Right, thank you so much for reading that. All right. So, last question I got for you: um, mm-hmm. any any books that you've read recently, or um, maybe even the past you know months or or years that uh, maybe you think needs some more readership? But is anything you'd recommend to the audience? Mm,
1: that's a good question. I mean, uh, one of the things that I absolutely fly through is. Um, the Cradle series by Will White. Um, they're always fun whenever the new next book comes out and I just fly through those. Um, uh, another thing that I've read that I think is probably one of the most, it's not fiction, but one of the most important books that I've had the pleasure of reading in the last little while is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Now, perhaps I'm a little bit biased because the things that she's discussing in the in the nonfiction book um, sort of relate very closely to what I'm trying to explore in my own uh, sort of series. Um, and now she does it with a, a lot more eloquence and a lot more sort of actual study, rigor and research, but it's, it's just, it's an incredible book that I honestly would have trouble believing someone could read it from front to back and walk away unchanged. Uh, it's cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's not a epic fantasy, but it's, it's definitely a very worthwhile read. Okay. Yeah.
0: I, I, I've been, uh, following Will for a while in the Cradle series mm, and I know, yeah. uh, I know David Schaefer, one of my co-bloggers, uh, loves loves those books. So uh, that's all. That's awesome to hear. It, it's the first time I've heard anybody mention those. But the fact that you fly through them, and I, I feel like I gotta get to them now. I think I have all of them on audio.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Travis Ballotree is the narrator and does an excellent job as well
0: fantastic
1: um so uh so everybody um fires
0: of vengeance comes out on november 10th do you do you have the book with you you want to show everybody the cover i i, I left let's my do copy it. at home, so.
1: i i think the funny thing is that the cover will look reversed like it's looked through a mirror but let's see here uh, uh. There we uh, go. Okay, it looks great. <laughs> All right, perfect.
0: Fantastic. The fires of vengeance. <laughs> so, book two uh, of the burning series uh, from Evan. But, um, Evan, uh, just thank you so much for taking the time to come chat with me and answer some questions uh, for me and for my audience. Uh, it's it's always appreciated having you on. You're a phenomenal writer, uh, okay. a great person, great follow on Twitter. Uh, it's just it's it's a pleasure knowing you. Uh, and just great. thanks again.
1: I, I absolutely appreciate being on and it's, it's very fun and awesome to talk to you. So, hey, anytime, I appreciate it. And uh, I hope your power comes back on soon.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to finishing up fires. And uh, obviously, we'll be looking forward to book three next year. Okay, Thank you very much. Thanks.